and welcome to Somniloquy. This is your monthly podcast about all things creative, pseudoscientific, and a little bit absurd. This podcast is brought to you by the Lucent Dreaming editors. If you've just stumbled across us, Lucent Dreaming is an independent creative writing magazine publishing beautiful, strange, and surreal fiction, poetry, and artwork from new and emerging authors and artists worldwide. Long story short, we've decided to make a podcast. But before we get into what this episode is about, I'm Janat, and joining me today, and for the rest of time, I hope, are my fellow Lucent Dreaming editors, Joe and Jonas. As this is our first episode, I'm going to let you guys introduce yourselves. So, Joe, tell listeners a little bit about yourself. Who are you? What do you do? Where are you based? Uh, hi, listeners. Yeah, I'm Joe. Um... I work as an English teacher in Holland, so I'm based uh, in Holland. Uh, I work at a secondary school. I'm also a freelance translator, English-Dutch. Um, but my most important job, of course, is working for Lucent Dreaming. Uh, I sometimes edit submissions, uh, make the covers, and I am currently working on the second, or what was it? 22nd best podcast in the world. <laughs> And Jonas, who are you? Where are you based? What do you do? Hi, I am across the sea in America in the Seattle area, which, you know, is actually a UNESCO city of literature. So that makes it better than almost every other city in America. Um, I've been writing fiction on and off for most of my conscious life, uh, but only really focusing on it in the past eight years or so. But for money, I am a technical writer at Microsoft, so I guess you could say I'm technically a writer. Um, <laughs> uh, yes, I do slash reading, editing stuff for Lucent Dreaming, which is, you know, that's also my most important job. <laughs> uh, and it's about to get even more important with this podcast. Yeah, no pressure, guys. Definitely. Okay. <laughs> Um, I'm Janat, as you both know, and everyone else on the planet. Um, I'm a freelance proofreader and part-time university teacher at Cardiff, and I'm currently teaching a creative writing course where I encourage people to write and then judge them for it in a good way, <laughs> right? <laughs> so I think that's, that's a... what we do. Yes. Yeah, I know, just judging. That's what I do all day long. Um, but I think that's a good segue into... Our topic today which is what is the best way to judge creative work so there are three things i want to touch on or discuss mm. with you both um, number one how you judge measure or critique your own work number two how you judge the creative work of others and number three what is the best approach to giving and receiving feedback on creative work so I came across an article recently on LitHub about feedback and criticism called Towards Changing the Language of Creative Writing Classrooms by Helen Betia Rubinstein. Um, if one of you can summarize what it's about and then tell me what you thought about it. Joe? Um, I've kind of forgotten what it was about, so I'm going to pass the ball to Jonas. <laughs> <laughs> Jonas? All right. Well. Uh, I, I quite like that article, really. Um, 
unlike you all, I'd actually never went to college, so I haven't taken the sort of classes this article references. And so uh, there was one part of the article where they mentioned that um, they had to reorient students to uh, let them know more socially motivated reasons to write, such as the reason to create an experience for someone else. And I found that really interesting because that's sort of the only reason I write or have ever written. And trying to think of a reason other than that to write is kind of weird to me. Like, what other reason is there to write that these people are being taught? Well, it's to make money, isn't it? I think that was the article, because it's coming back to me now. Um, article was saying that they needed to be retooled to not write for, I think it was saying either just to sell well or to, to garner praise or something. Right, Jeanette, is that correct? It was money and commercial success, yeah. Right, so the same thing. Twice. Yeah. Yeah, money. Um, but Jonas, it's, I can, I, we can have an interesting conversation because I've, in the past at least, and I am still haven't shaken that, I do definitely also write to make myself feel good somehow. Um, and maybe you could call that a socially motivated reason, but it feels very selfish. It feels like, at least when I started writing, I felt like, oh, you know, I've, I have some kind of talent for language, so I should be able to do this. And it was a way to prove to myself and I guess also others, even though nobody was reading it, that I could do it. And my, uh, ink, I have an inkling that a lot of people write for that reason, but I could be wrong. So it is like a, a, uh, a challenge to yourself, a personal challenge yeah, it's a, it's a challenge to yourself, but for, for the weird reason that you've already kind of decided that you can do it, and now you are going to do it. It's not like, or the challenge I put to myself at the start was not to learn how to do it, but the challenge was, well, you can already do it, you know that, so now you have to, you know, you just have to do it, which is a very weird kind of reasoning. For me, it's it's always been about trying to recreate experiences I enjoyed myself. So even my very, very, very first ridiculous short stories about evil pickles and cricket ghosts that I would write when I was 13 or 14, I was trying to copy Douglas Adams and his goofy, random, humorous style in Hitchhiker's Guide. I read it. I loved it. I was like, I want to make someone laugh like that. So I tried to recreate the experience that I had had in my own works and I think ever since then, that's been my goal in writing. I'll read something I like or love, and I try to figure out how can I make someone else feel that way that I just felt. Yes. And that, that's what the article was saying was what they wanted writing students to write, to have as a reason for writing, right? Um, and I think the weird case for me is still that I write mostly for, to prove to myself something. But then the, the way, the measuring stick by which I judge my work is definitely works that I've read, like you. So you were trying to measure up to Douglas Adams. Um, me, I'll flip from work to work. If I read a new book, then I'll be like, wow, I like this style as well. Now I'm going to measure my work by this work. And, and, and on it goes. So I write for myself or to prove something to myself, but I measure it by comparing it to established works, which is probably very strange. 
I think that makes sense because it's for people like you and I who, you know, our work doesn't get read by so many people. It's kind of hard to judge or critique yourself based on anything other than other things you've read. Like you don't have, we don't have a lot of reactions of readers to say whether it's good or bad to go off of. So all you can go off of is your own um, judgment reading it based, you know, comparatively with other things you've read, which is really hard. Like I'm struggling with that lately. I don't really know how to tell if I'm getting better anymore. Like I just, I've gotten past the point where I used to be able to look at my writing and be like, ah, I can do so much better here, here, and there. Now it's getting less obvious, which I guess means I'm improving, but it's hard to tell anymore. (laughs) The thing that's changed about you, Jonas, is that I think you are pretty much an advocate, advocate for invisible prose. You were always about like precise language and specific and kind of narrowing it down and making something sharp. But the things you've been reading over the past year have been much more literary fictions, the kinds of works that kind of focus on the prose and not just what's happening across the story. Yes, that is very true. I... I am a, I'm constantly just influenced by whatever I'm reading, and the past year and a half, two years maybe, I've been reading more literary-minded things. So, yeah, my writing style has been shifting. I used to just care about the story and the plot and what happens and being clever or surprising or having a cool twist, and now I almost have no interest in plot at all, so it's kind of difficult. <laughs> But have you, do you ever miss those old days of just, because it sounds, it sounds quite nice in a kind of almost childlike, imaginative way. Um, and I feel like the person who wrote this article about having writers write for different reasons might have really, th- might have really thought that that was a really good reason to write. If you, you know, just wanting to have a, a, a cool plot or be surprising. So do you feel like, do you feel like it's a positive development that you've gone more, in the way of literature? I don't know if you can say it's positive or negative. It's just different. See, what I was writing before, I was still trying to write the things that I liked and enjoyed, and now I just like and enjoy different things, so now I'm writing different things, or trying to. Um, Yeah. It, It really, like was I think actually Janny you were one of the triggers for that whole shift when you told me to read the New York trilogy you were <laughs> no it was great I read that book and I was like this doesn't make any sense nothing really happened there wasn't really any plot but wow why did I love it so much it made me feel like weird and strange and I thought about it for months afterward uh, yeah right and now you're trying to recreate those weirds and all maybe instead of more straightforward but that's still writing for the social reason right so um but how do you then deal with yeah well you mentioned that you found it harder and harder to to figure out whether you were going you know you were still growing so how do you for yourself gauge what kind of reactions you are eliciting in your readers then do you have a loyal base of readers that 
Is it family or friends or is it strangers on the internet? I do. I have my writing group, which is made up out, you know, there's like six of us and I meet with them a couple times a week in the real world. And then I have my online reader friends of which you all are some, uh, and the thing is like, it's, it's really hard. Uh, let me think of how to phrase this. Like not, if someone doesn't understand what you've written, that doesn't necessarily mean it's bad. So that's where I have, that's where I have trouble. Like, cause I feel I have a pretty strong, um, opinion, I guess that the best books in the world, the best entertainment, even you could say is going to be divisive. Like not everyone is going to like it. If, if everybody universally likes something, it's almost guaranteed to be mediocre. I feel. Or pop music. Yeah, pop music or, you know, the the big box office superhero movies that everybody can go and watch and be like, oh, okay, that was fun. But anything that's, like, brilliant is going to have a large por portion of the population that just doesn't like it. And I'm that's this, this is probably coming off as, like, big-headed. I'm not trying to say anything I'm writing is, like, that kind of brilliant but if something was sort of a niche thing, you know, which really speaks to a small set of people, then you have to know how to take feedback on something that a certain set of people just aren't going to like, like regardless. So I think that is, I think that's a, a part of being able to take feedback is you have to be really sure of what you're trying to do and able to yeah you see you have to be able to be confident enough in what you're doing and sure enough of what you're trying to do to be able to disregard feedback that just is missing the point or doesn't care for what you're trying to do and that's also difficult <laughs> that's interesting um because that suggests that the more niche your work is the more um choosy you have to be when picking people to read it because if you want to shift your because you can ask for criticism you can go to someone and ask uh what do you think of this just a very general question what do you think of my writing and they'll probably name some uh criteria which they think defines good writing and then they'll say well you know it meets this criterion but this one uh, still missing out on this one but what you would like to if you're writing for the social reason as we can call it you you might want to ask well how does it how do you respond personally to my work or something or how do you react to this or um, what does what does this cause in you when you read it but then if you've got the if you've got a person that is not inclined to even like the kind of stuff you write or if they have a very different taste you you can't really be sure if the answer is going to be useful for you I guess right. Yeah, I guess there's two different kinds of feedback you can ask for. You can just hand something over, like, just, like, with in a blank, you know, un, undescribed, and be like, just, what is, what do you think of this? What does it make you feel? And then you get some, some feedback from that. And then you can 
on the other hand, give it to someone and describe, here's what I'm trying to do. Does it succeed at that? But again, I guess it really depends on who the, if you have to know the people you're getting feedback from pretty well, it might make the feedback more useful that way. So you said that you're more inclined to want to, you're quite sure of what you want to do with your work. And then ideally you'd have um, people reading it who can respond to that. And I think I'd be more inclined to to kind of cherish any reaction I would get. Um, you know, maybe except if it's negative, if, if somebody goes, I hate it. But if, if I write something that I intended to be uh, tragic and somebody interpreted interprets it as being as being comical or something. I'm not sure if I would be necessarily opposed to that. And actually connecting this to pop music, um, I, I I don't listen to a lot of pop music myself, but I can't really claim that it's bad or substandard because evidently it is definitely speaking to a large group of people out there. And and connecting that to literature, I was the other day I was reading a discussion online about um the Alchemist by Paulo Coelho, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, famous Brazilian writer, which I've never read, but it's it's often it's a, it's it, that's that's one of those divisive works I think that you mentioned, because a lot of people seem to love it and other, a lot of people seem to think it's really bad. Um, and then the discussion was about can we call this a bad book then if, if there's enough people who think it's bad or uh, if it speaks to people even if they're you know if it speaks to them when they're 18 but not 30. Does that mean that it's a bad book or is it just a book for a particular time in your life or, you know? So would you say then, then uh, that pop music is bad just because it appeals to too many people? Is that what you're saying? No. Okay. So I think good and bad are not very useful words here. Uh, pop music achieves, you know, good pop music achieves what it sets out to do, which is something for people to dance to or something that gets stuck in your head and you sing along with it and you can't you can't stop thinking about it it doesn't go away and it's like a virus you know it infects the djs it infects everyone and then it just self-replicates and goes everywhere for as long as possible and the longer it is it exists out there being played over and over the more successful it is it, it doesn't necessarily set out to make you feel anything other than just not being able to stop thinking about it. It doesn't, it doesn't want to make you cry. It doesn't want to make, put an idea in your head. I mean, some do maybe, but in general, they're just there to get you to play it to other people or talk about it to other people. Right. And I, I don't think it's bad. I'm quite a fan of pop music myself. I listen to it a lot. Um, but it doesn't make me feel anything usually or think anything I haven't thought before. Or, um, And that, I guess, I guess that maybe there's a line where you're talking about entertainment versus art. And like one can be the other or both. But I, th I think that's all. It's all probably pretty subjective, I guess. Oh, definitely. But would you say that at some point you you've got to make a decision whether to write entertainment or the other the art, as you call it? Yeah, I guess that's a good name for it. 
Yeah, I think I guess that's true. If if you have decided that you want your whatever you're creating to appeal to everybody or as many piece of people as is possible, then you're going to be looking at it a, a different way than I look at what I'm writing, which I don't want or expect it to be liked by everybody. I hope somebody it will make them feel very strongly or vividly what I intend, but I don't think that is possible to do to everybody in the world or even a lot of people. Um, you know I left the call, right? No, we did not. <sighs> oh, for a while, like I <laughs> we don't were know, just rambling three on. minutes. Why? <laughs> wow! <laughs> so you're gonna need to recap. And then we can pretend we're back. Why did you leave? Them? I <laughs> didn't. Like the internet died. Oh shit! You sound you sound much clearer now than you did at first. So maybe it's a good thing. Great. I was already wondering where you went. <laughs> yeah. We, need, we needed a third voice at some point. I think it was going fine, but the danger. Yeah, we were veering off topic. Yeah. Well. I didn't even know what you were talking about because I couldn't hear you because there was no internet. So recap me. So I asked a question. So I don't know if you heard this or not. I asked a question about whether she's right, Helen, whether she's right about. Okay, great. Do you th We've been still rambling on about feedback and about art versus entertainment and, you know. Okay, well, we have to rewind because I want to know whether you think she's right about changing the way we look at feedback and success and failure. Okay, can I, before we start, can I have a name again? Because I keep saying that person. Helen Betia Rubenstein. Miss Rubenstein. Don't put miss, don't put miss. Okay, Helen, we'll call her Helen. And what was the publication called, or what was the article called again? Towards Changing the Language of Creative Writing Classrooms. It's not a very catchy title. To the point, though. True. But yeah, I was asking whether or not you think she's right. I do. I mean, I think that's two separate endeavors. Whether you want to write a commercial product that appeals to everyone. That's almost like a business class, really, it seems to me. And then the creative writing class is just encouraging someone to be creative, right? So it seems like the the approach of you must write something that is appealing to everyone and will sell a million copies is very hindering to being creative. So I agree with her. I think it's pretty straightforward, her point, and I think it's a really... I mean, like I was saying before, I never went to college. I've never had this, these kind of experiences, but it seems to me pretty straightforward that you wouldn't want to have that approach to a creative writing class. And it's kind of sad to me that people have been boxed in like that and given those ideas about what they should write. I, I, I totally agree. agree. Wait. Go on then, Joe. I agree with you, Jonas, that... I, I don't think it's the right idea for a writing course. But I do think, first of all, that the business approach to it is much more teachable. So I'll get into that in a minute. But if we're talking about how to teach creative writing, that seems to me, first of all, to be much more easily teachable. Um, 
And second of all, if you are going to have it be um, centered on getting people to be creative, my question is, would you need a course for that in the first place? That's the first question. And the second question is, don't you think there's a risk of having a kind of too many cooks spoil the broth situation? Because at least the creative writing courses I'm familiar with, they use the, the workshop model, which I think is probably the most widespread one where everybody writes a piece and then you workshop it, meaning everybody reads it and then you talk about different aspects of it. And um, I think there's a real risk there, especially of beginning writers, to be intimidated by other people's opinions on their pieces and then they'll change it to fit the other's expectations. Whereas you want people to actually be creative in an individual way. And... Yeah, that seems a, that seems to me a great risk of creative writing courses. So on the one hand, I agree that the business direction is definitely not the way to go. Then, but I'm not really sure if a course is the best way to learn how to creatively write. Wow. Hmm. I think I see your point of people being overwhelmed by everyone else's opinions. Uh, but I think if I remember in the article, she tried to focus on not. Um, having judgmental, uh, how did she phrase it? Um, I should have made a note of that. Janny, do you remember what I'm talking about? How the the critiques were very specific in in how they um, they did not have qualitative. Yeah, they were more about evoking feeling and yeah, what a piece made you feel and how you responded to it. Reader response rather than um saying this was a success or this works or this is great not yeah that's the word i was i had lost there no they don't have qualitative statements like this is bad because or this is good because it's um right this what were you trying to do here you know i i think people could answer those kind of questions and when you're forced to answer that kind of question Maybe you didn't even know what you were trying to do. Maybe you weren't thinking about it. And that forces you to think about what you're trying to do and what you did do. And I think that's the point of creative writing classes in the sense that you're trying not to be isolated. You're looking at other people's perspectives on your writing, but also allowing yourself to be open to other people's approaches to writing, which you won't be if you're alone and writing. Right? It's true, but then... Don't you have to choose between, aren't you going to run the risk of compromising between having your individual whatever, you know, everybody's got certain ideas on how writing should work, just that are somehow innate, you know, they build that up over their, the course of their lives. And you'll often hear people saying, well, just follow that instinct and write whatever you like. Don't you have to then compromise with um, people's reactions I mean, you're going to get reactions to your writing anyway, but should they influence you while you're writing, is my question. I don't know how to answer that. Um, I think it's like you have to... I, I, I guess I... It depends on if the class is meant to teach you how to write, like, period. Like, what is the story structure? What are characters? Like all these things because if you have an assignment to do 
A, B, C, you know, write a um, character doing X and B situation, then you can succeed or fail at that if it's an assigned um, thing. But uh, what am I trying to get at? I guess I'm trying to say there's a difference between being judged on the rules of writing versus judged on whether you succeeded at something as a whole. Because there are, like, you kind of got to learn the rules before you can fool around with them. Learn them before you break the rules, yeah. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I suppose by, by, by trying out different sorts of things, and they can even be other people's ideas of what writing is, you know, they don't have to be just basic plot structure characterization, but they can actually be uh, other people's ideas. By trying them out, of course, you can hone your own sense of, what you would like to write and what you think is good. So that makes sense to me. Yeah. I think that's what a creative writing course could offer. Definitely. I would think so. And I think anybody taking a creative writing class opposed to teaching it probably should go into it with the idea that they don't know everything or all, much at all. Maybe even it's probably best to go into any class, assuming that you don't know anything and just try everything uh, with an open mind before you decide what you think you want to write or want to do. Yeah. I, yeah. I, th I think letting go of your own expectations is probably a, a crucial bit part of writing anyway, even if you're not taking a course. So I agree with that. Um, I have something. No, I don't. No, I don't. Oh yes. So how do you feel about giving feedback through lucent dreaming then because we're not a creative writing course but we do give feedback on all the qualifying submissions we get and obviously we're using our own reference point our style sheet that doesn't really exist yeah so that i think is the most difficult part of my job just because it's so subjective really it is i so i have to look at it as I'm giving them feedback based on what I want for this magazine because that's really all I can give it based on. I don't know what they were trying to do. I don't know who they are as a person. I haven't read anything else in most cases that they've written. So all I can judge it on is in relation to what we want for this magazine. So, yeah, so that's what I do. <laughs> but even that can infringe quite a bit on text that they send in and i also find i mean i don't do as, as much editing as you jonas but i still find that very difficult and you know there's obvious things like correcting typos language mistakes but then you do have to get into oh i wonder if this part could work better if you change it this way or that way and actually i would be interested to know in in what our um, contributors how they how would they react to that because, yeah, on the one hand, they, they probably had some idea of what they wanted to achieve with their piece, but then they also want to be included in a magazine, and we have certain ideas about our aesthetic and, and flavor. And even, even judging based on those standards is quite difficult, because a lot of the time I also find myself thinking, well, you know, what if we just did something that's slightly outside of those standards to make it interesting, which is like something new as well. The problem with, it's not really a problem, but the problem with our magazine is that that's exactly what we're open to. 
that's the whole reason it's as it is. It's like, oh, let's do something slightly out of this, but it's like slightly out of ourselves. And yeah, and it's it's really hard. Like, I I like people to know this too. Like, people submitting a story and it gets rejected. That doesn't mean it's bad. It it might really just mean that the editor had a bad day, was in a bad mood when they read it and just rejected it because they didn't like a word in the first paragraph. I mean, we we, we don't do that. We read every single one all the way through. But a lot of places that receive hundreds of submissions a month or a week, they have to read through those real quick and make snap judgments. And it's I know a lot of new writers, they get really hurt and they're like afraid of rejections a lot of people don't submit because they're afraid to be rejected and how that will feel and i just wish i could express to people that it really doesn't mean anything it's almost it's almost not a measure at all of how good your story is it only is a measure of how that one specific person who read it on that day how what they felt about it now if you if you sent it to a dozen places and they're all rejections, then maybe you're going to start to think, okay, this doesn't really fit anywhere that I'm sending it. But one rejection doesn't, it means almost nothing. So just, you got to keep sending it, keep sending it. If if you believe in it, keep sending it. Well, this podcast is one way to let people know, I guess. I, I think it's really important that people know that. In fact, I, I've had negative reactions to a story I've read just because, the main character had the name of this guy that I didn't like <laughs> at school. You know, you get a gut, get a gut negative reaction. Yeah. All right. And then it just it makes it really <laughs> difficult to stay objective. You know, it's like how certain names are just ruined for you, and if they occur in the story, well, that's it. Back from that, it's a write-off. It's a write-off. Yeah. But I feel like I don't know how you feel, Jonas, because I've given you the bulk of the job of reader is that the word slush reader yes um imposter syndrome feeling like you aren't even qualified to judge to begin with yeah i i have that feeling not so much lately but at first i was like what who why would anyone care what i have to think why should i be the one picking you know but i think we all know what we like and since we aren't necessarily picking stories based on some objective measure of quality, we're picking based on what we like to read. So we know what we like to read. So, I mean, who's better to judge that than us? That's true. And we do, we do have an explicit mindset of helping people grow anyway. I mean, that's what we set out to do as well. And we, um, we provide all of our contributors with feedback and with the qualification that it's our reaction and this is what we as readers uh, think of your story. It definitely does not mean that it's bad or good for that matter. It's it's just your story, yeah. And I think I think that is one of our strengths is that we do have explicitly also set ourselves the task of helping people grow if they you know if they want it. And not just as rejecting it just because we want to be a, a magazine with quality stuff in it or something. We're there for the contributors as well. Yes. And 
as uh, Janie, I think you told me this actually when I was worrying about this. I may not have written a lot of books or sold a lot of stories, but I have read a lot. So I have read many, many hundreds or thousands, I don't know, probably not thousands <laughs> of books in my life. <laughs> and many, many, many short stories. How many of them uh, have Dylan's in it? Had, had what in it? Dylan. The name Dylan. Dylan's? The name. Oh, you know, probably not that many. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why Jonas kept reading. Exactly. Right, yeah, as, exactly. As soon as you encounter your first Dylan, it's all over. That's it. Right off. Rejected. No. Feedback, you use the name Dylan. <laughs> um. I don't, oh my gosh, if this, this becomes something, oh no. We're just going to get a whole horde of submissions with the protagonist named Dylan. I would, I would welcome it. I would welcome it. The Dylan I would issue. It. Just, it would make us more interesting. Yeah. Oh my God. Loosen Dylan. Loosen Dylan. Um, this reminds me though of, Jeanette, uh, a Twitter discussion that you sent to us. Oh yes. <laughs> I'm glad you brought this up. In fact, it's very relevant because the discussion was about, um, someone on Twitter was saying that she was miffed by people sending in subpar work to magazines, right? Yeah, to literature magazines. That's how it started. And then it kind of cascaded into a discussion about whether uh, people should just get good before they submit or whether magazines should um, lower their standards or whether there should be different tiers of magazines from low quality pulp to really high quality. Did you see this, Jonas? I read a tweet, but I somehow missed that context of it. Um, that's ridiculous. That makes me angry, actually. Um, it's a whole thread. Yeah, and then somebody else responded by saying, well, you know, how else are writers going to grow and how are magazines are going to grow? Um, and there needs to be a, a stage for everything, right? There needs to be a stage for people just beginning, uh, we're just starting out. You know, it's someone took, they wrote a story and they offered it to you and you're going to be a jerk like that and be like, oh, you turn your nose up at it. You know, that's crap. If you just, what kind of effort does it take to you to just read it? I mean, you're not offering feedback. These magazines aren't offering feedback. They're just going to read the first page or so and be like, ah, this is not on par with what we want and move on. So what's the big deal? Like the only thing I, we've had a couple submissions that were, you know, uh, crafted insults uh, directed at us. Oh, I remember. Yes. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, oh yes. The, those, that's one thing. Okay. That's, that's not very nice to see and not to, nice to receive, but someone who just wrote a story and you can tell they're a beginner and they're not, you know, at the level where you want to have them in your magazine, well, just move on. <laughs> I mean, I don't understand how this is a, a problem. Exactly. And what I think is more important is how much effort somebody put into it, regardless of where they, where they stand. And I feel, at least I have the feeling that I can usually tell if somebody's earnestly worked at it. 
and put, you know, what you might call heart into it, at least, you know, enough effort. If you receive a low effort submission, you'll recognize that right away. And you can, I think, safely ignore those. But as long as you feel that somebody's serious about it, you should take it seriously. Yeah, I think the whole like horrible part of this thread was I saw another tweet later um, from a different literary magazine um, saying how someone had, um, what was it, what's the word, rescinded, you know, taken back this submission because they didn't think it was good enough because they'd seen this thread and part of it says, um, yeah, that um, writers should develop their own instinct about whether or not something is good before they submit to good magazines, in quotation marks. That's that's just ridiculous because that instinct is going to get better over time. And you're like, how are you going to tell? Like, how will you even tell if your instinct is developed? Like, that's just ridiculous. Exactly. In a vacuum, that's almost impossible. You need to You need to get it out there. Yeah, you have to send things out. If you're constantly worrying about whether something is good enough, well, I'll tell you from my experience, it's never good enough. <laughs> Great, positive. You're never going. You're never going to feel. Well, and I never feel that anything I've ever submitted is perfect. I might think I might think it's pretty good, but it could always be better. Everything could always be better. I mean, if you don't feel that way, you're probably just a narcissist if you don't feel that way. I think everyone feels that way. <laughs> <laughs> you're probably a Dylan. You're probably a Dylan if you feel like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry to all Dylans. But, uh, yes, apologies to all Dylans, but we've got to make jokes as well. Um, Jonas, do you feel like that's liberating for you, that it's never going to be good enough, or is it restrictive? I think it's, I mean, it's just how it is with everything. You you can always improve at everything. I hope. I mean, it, it wouldn't be depressing to be the best at something and just know you can't get any better. Like you just, you are what you are. I mean, I don't know. For me, like a lot of the enjoyment I get out of writing is becoming better at it and improving and discovering new things that I don't know how to do and then trying to master them. But I think we all have this kind of basis of wanting to grow, which is why we're part of part of this. Because we didn't have to start a podcast, if that makes sense. We didn't have to start a magazine. We didn't have to write. In a sense, we're all kind of self-starters. But then, do you guys agree with my intuition? That, that is backed up by this Twitter thread, that writing is a hobby that has a disproportionate number of people in it that feel like they should already be able to do it or something, or that they... I kind of think I know where you're coming from. People who have not spent a lot of time writing feel that it's easy. Right, yes. That's exactly what I mean. I I remember I was on a forum. Uh, that I used to be part of this forum for write. Uh, forum, sorry, I'm, I'm mispronouncing that. A forum for writers. Uh, if you heard of the writer Ken Liu, he's famous for short stories. He's re- recently written sci-fi. But he uh, he had a post talking about how his friends, his family, people he knows, often when he mentions that he's a, a writer, they'll be like, oh, I've always wanted to write a book, but I just haven't had the time. You know, uh-huh. as if well, if only I had the time, I could just write a book. Like people assume that 
it's easy if they haven't done it. Because any anyone can write. They are correct, but they are probably underestimating how much time they would need. Yeah, and people think, I can write, I can type words. <laughs> I can type words. I can write a sentence. So they think... They, they think that writing a book is just an extension of that. I can write a paragraph, so therefore I can write a novel. It is in some way kind of a natural mistake to make, because if you look at other art, you know, uh, types of art like painting, you, you need to develop actual technique of mixing paints, using brushes, using canvases, etc., to be even, even be able to start painting, I guess. And the same goes for musical instruments, whereas you're right that People might think that, oh, well, writing is typing, which is even probably easier than writing by hand. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I need to be able to do is to get people, yeah. It's a hobby. It's a creative endeavor that has almost no um, investment required, a monetary investment. Yeah. So accessible. Like You don't have to buy uh, paints like and canvas, as you said. You don't have to... Um, mm. Right, I'm blanking now, but you know, a lot of creative endeavors require materials, and writing doesn't require materials. So, um, so Jeanette, no, if we are talking about so, if we're talking about growing as a writer, if we agree that that's one of the most exciting things about it, and I don't think I agree to this, but carry on, okay? Well, you can you can give your retort in a minute, uh, and if we agree that it is an important thing to strive for, to be, keep growing. Where do you think Lucent Dreaming is positioned in that growth process? Are we on all stages of the growth process? Are we mostly there for beginners? Are we uh, mostly there for people in the middle? Wow, I think we're there for everyone from the beginning to the middle. I mean, we can try to help people who are higher up if we just imagine there are people higher up and that I think in that sense is just helping them be nice people yeah right because well, we'll leave those for the higher tiers yeah yeah <laughs> yeah totally the Dylans the Dylans among the magazine world <laughs> <laughs> yes this it's a it's a tiered system yeah <laughs> I th I think what our aim is to it's for more beginner writers, I would think, but that doesn't mean beginning in the in the skill area, but in the publishing world area. And I think what's so special is how we find those beginning writers or beginner writers, because right initially when we were on the submission grinder, we were getting, I don't know, a couple of submissions a month and then a couple of submissions a week, but they weren't... <sighs> I don't know. I couldn't describe the quality of them. The very, very first, when we first launched. Yeah. Yeah, they were. Yeah, they were, because we didn't know what we were doing. Yeah, they were interesting. A lot of them seemed like, uh, I, want, I think the term is trunk stories, like that people had written a long time ago and can't find a place for. And then like, ah, oh, this place doesn't, seems weird. Maybe Maybe I'll just send it here and see what happens. Uh, that's, the, that's the impression I got for some of them. Yeah. Whereas now we're a bit more targeted. So whenever there's a new contest, I make a point of emailing all the universities in the UK that do English 
and creative writing courses. Um, and we get a lot of cool entries. Yeah, we get a lot of really good entries and it's wonderful just spending the weekend just reading however many stories in one go because they're all so, there's always, there's always so much promise. Um, and what you get from that is like people have all this imagination and potential and a lot of the times like there's some coherence to the story and the characters are really well drawn out but it just needs a bit of editing it just needs a bit of tweaking and it just needs a home and I feel like we offer that um, but it's for the, be the beginner writers who want to pursue something and that's I think the difference when it when I'm targeting them, clearly they're people who want to pursue creative writing or else they wouldn't yeah. have taken, I don't know, a creative writing course. So, but they've identified what matters to them, which is why they've submitted something, which I think goes back to the article where it's identifying your own value judgment for your own stories and then working from there to achieve whatever goals they are. There's one one line in that article actually that really uh, struck me. She's talking about writers who wonder whether their work is any good rather than whether it does any good, and that really resonated with me because in the past, you know, recent past, I've been worrying about the quality of my writing and whether you know it's good enough, but I like qualitatively wise, you know, but I think there's a, a subtle difference there between judging it, whether on if it is good in some objective measure that probably doesn't exist, but you judge it by what it does by, I, I'm not even totally sure if that's what she meant by that line, but what I took from it, what I took from it is what it does, like the effect it has on people. So I'm not involved in the contest. Is that, something you take into account when when judging the competitors <laughs> that 100 percent. i don't uh, the the quality of the prose is is uh it's up up there i mean if it's if there's something that's really awkwardly written it, it can make it difficult to enjoy but really the number one thing to me is how do i feel when reading it i i that's almost all I'm judging really for the contest. I read it and if it made me excited, if it made me laugh, if it made me feel anything at all strongly, it, it gets a star next to it, you know? And I come back to it and then I look closely at the pros and look at that. But my first instinct is always, what did I feel while reading it? Yeah. And I think that kind of channels into how we judge it. So there are four four ways we judge um premise quality of writing feel for character and overall coherence and i guess feel for character and premise are pretty much those kind of the feeling ones so half of the mark or half of the judging goes to feeling and the other half goes to quality of writing and overall coherence and even overall coherence is kind of based loosely on whether or not that sustains that feeling if it moves forward if it progresses so, but how do you then, how do you then take that same approach to your own work? I definitely don't. That's, that's very difficult because I can't, I can't judge <laughs> by how it makes me feel when I wrote it. I mean, 
I have to pester other people and be like, what did this make you feel? What did it make you feel? You know, and not everyone's not everyone's always good at answering that question. You know, people don't even know how they're feeling about themselves most of the time. That is true. So I think to, to get in touch with that, though, I think is actually an important could be an important um, aid to your writing. And in fact, what I've been trying lately is I've been writing a bit more. I've been trying to not see what the effect is, which I think is important. But I'm also trying to see, um, okay, I was feeling something when I thought of this, or for some reason this popped into my head and I wanted to write about it. Did I get yeah. it on the paper somehow? Did I somehow succeed in, in getting it there mm. in the first place? Because it's definitely possible to write something that looks good but is empty because you didn't you weren't behind it yourself mm -hmm. and i feel like that's at least one criteria by which i judge my own writing and was there something of me in this when i wrote it or was it just something that i thought looked cool sounded cool or otherwise people would like whereas you know it doesn't have anything of myself in it i think that's at least one way you can yes. begin to see um, whether um, it has any effect at least that's how i do it that's that's a good point. You, you have to keep your own intentions in mind, I guess. Maybe that's one way to look at it. Because if you're writing something just to like put words together, like you're saying, you know, I've done that before. It's like, I just got to write something. I don't have any ideas. I'll just put some words. This happens every nanowrimo. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure it does, Jenny. That's right. <laughs> but, but yeah, I think it, I think it could, it, it, I mean, of course, nothing is 100%. You could end up writing something brilliant just by spewing out words. But I think that what you say is accurate in that we need to have some, I don't want to say point to writing it, but some intention. Like, what are you, are you trying to, are you trying to transmit an idea? Are you trying to capture a feeling? Are you trying to, um, what, what are you trying to do? Yeah. I mean, maybe you just want to write a page turner and have someone just not be able to stop reading it and stay up all night. That's still an objective. You know, that's something you got to have some aim, I think, when you're writing anything. Of course, you can also use writing to figure out what you are thinking or feeling if you're not sure. And it's also a powerful tool for that. Very true. Very true. <laughs> Magic. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. This is another question. Um, have you inherited any ideals of greatness, as Helen said? You know, because you were saying, what were you saying, Joe? That some parts of why we write or how we write are innate, but I imagine they're inherited. Uh, I think they are partly innate. I mean, the way you grew up, you know, the values you got from your parents, your peers, your environment, uh, the things you find aesthetically interesting. It's still a kind of a mystery to me how how the human mind builds up those things, but I I have no idea why I like certain colors or certain sounds and I dislike others. But we do have those, and I, I mean, I guess technically they're not innate because they are built when you grow up, but I, they're so ingrained and so early onset that I still call them innate. That's what I mean by innate. And then, then probably the majority of my criteria is inherited. Um, mostly from books that I've read, uh, from things that I've heard people say about writing. But I'm also trying to kind of break down those again. I do feel an urge to want to return to my innate 
um, likes and dislikes. And that's very tough because a lot of the time I don't actually know where they come from or what they are. Well, you can't pin it down, really. It's like, oh, I really don't like sour blueberries. Yeah, I guess I agree. I'm not I'm not totally sure what you mean by innate either. I think it like something at your core that doesn't change. Is that is that what you mean? Yeah, I think that, that approximates it at least, yeah. And there are also things that I just like for no reason, or seemingly no reason. Why do I like certain foods and others I don't like? I have no idea. Now, for example, I really like a specific type of rainy day where it's raining, but the rain is very kind of weak. I don't know what you would call that in English. Uh, and it kind of just drizzle, I guess, but even weaker than drizzle, just like just very faint rain and it kind of blows in the wind. Uh, and it's still kind of like there's a weird sun that's it's not entirely cloudy. I don't know. There must be a name for this. But I, I really am really fond of this kind of weather. And I challenge you to explain to me why. Is it because it is rare? Is it because you can't even describe it? It's indescribable. No, it's nothing so intellectual as that, I think. I mean, I can rationalize it. I could try to rationalize yeah. it, but I don't think there's a rational reason for it. Yeah, it makes me feel something that I can barely articulate. But that that's the kind of thing that ideally I would have in my writing. I would, you know, use writing to, yeah. So do you think that there is some ideal of writing, like a perfect book, a hypothetical perfect book you could read or write out there and that you are just over your years discovering certain aspects here and there that are a part of it and sort of discovering what that might be? Or do you think that it is going to change over time? Like if you discovered your hypothetical perfect book and read it today, would it still be the perfect book 10 years from now? No, no, the latter. I think it, it it is in a in a constant process of change. So I don't. I think it's kind of a fooled errand to be looking for that. You'll never find it, because yeah, you'll you'll gradually discover your, you know, you become more firm about what you like and dislike. But then, new things happen in your life, and you start to like and dislike new things. Like, you know, um, I I am now. Um, I don't like the name Dylan, but in the future, <laughs> let's say next week, uh, oh I encounter a Dennis that I really don't like either, <laughs> and then Dennis will be added to my list of things that I don't want to see in a book, you know? And that's just or maybe you meet maybe you meet a Dylan who's just the most amazing guy in the world, and then that... Ah, that could also happen, and then he becomes neutral again, and then you meet another good Dylan, and he shifts over into the positive side of the scale. Uh, I'm just hoping I won't meet any other Janas or Jonases that I... Oh, I hope not either. ...have friction with. Uh, and that's a very silly example, but I do think that, on the whole, that's how it works with... Yeah, it's in a state of flux. And yeah, that's definitely how our brain works. Just from a million directions, you get new, new um, influences, you know, from the way you live your life um, to the kinds of food you like. Yeah, new ideals. And I think, actually, that's a good thing. That's exciting. Then you can... If you're in tune with that, if you have good, have a good feel for those things, then I think you can keep writing new things, and that seems to me to be a very good thing. I think so. Pulling little pieces from all the things you encounter in the world and adding them to your own, uh, what's the word, repertoire. Repertoire, I guess, yeah, or own kind of like little box of cherished things, yeah. 
is this where we end it? Um, oh, I don't think I have any other questions. Do you guys want to say anything before we kill it? Somebody who's a pro can splice everything together. Joe. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. <laughs> that means I don't have to cut out any Dylans. You're going to cut them in. You <laughs> insert, insert more Dylans. <laughs> yeah, thanks. I'm going to cut them in, yeah. I'm just going to record. I will record myself saying Dylan in 30 different ways and just splice it. Yeah. Oh, no. I think that should be our, um, you know, our intro music. Definitely not pop music. Great. Okay. I think that's all... <laughs> I'll start again. I think that's about all we have time for this episode of Somniloquy. Before we go, I wanted to say a huge thank you to our Patreon supporters over at patreon.com forward slash lucentdreaming. This podcast wouldn't be happening without them. So thank you. You're all awesome. And of course, thank you for listening to the first episode of Somniloquy. We'll catch you all next time for more sleep talking with friends. Great. I'm glad we're not calling it pillow talk. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Oh no. I'm so sorry. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, oh yes. <laughs>